there, my name is Carly Deering and this is the very first episode of Off the Beatle Track, the podcast where I'm exploring the hidden history of the Beatles by hearing previously unheard voices, talking to those who are taking new approaches and bringing fresh perspectives to the band and their history. I'm hoping to tell a diverse, inclusive story which looks back but also forward, considering the future and legacy of Beatles history and fandom. Through the discussions with my guests, I hope to add even more colour, depth and breadth to the much-beloved story of the four lads who shook the world. Before I introduce my first guest, I'd like to briefly tell you my history with the Beatles and why I ended up making this podcast. I'm recording this in Liverpool, where I've lived for the last 16 years, but I grew up in South London, a teenager of the 90s, a huge enthusiast of Britpop and indie, which clearly had a lot to thank the Beatles for. My parents were huge music fans and our house was full of records, as my dad had been a DJ in the 70s, so I grew up with a great appreciation for the music they both loved in their formative years. This included the Beatles, who my mum had seen live at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1965 at the tender age of 10. She'd gone there with my nan, and they both have fond memories of the show, although the screaming for both of them was a lot to take. I think for me, it was the Beatles' films that captivated me first as a youngster. The knockabout fun of A Hard Day's Night and the bonkers humour of Help really appealed to me. As I started to go to live concerts myself around 12 years old, I really started to listen to Beatles' music more and get interested in their history. And I remember my parents taking me to a Beatles memorabilia fair in London and I came home with an enormous cardboard print of John Lennon's face, which I then proudly displayed in my room. I think it's still lurking in my parents' loft somewhere. And from there, the Beatles' music remained a solid fixture of my Walkman, iPod and all the other technologies firmly into adulthood. Fast forward to 2008 and I moved to Liverpool to study for my PhD in cultural history, where I was to stay and start my career in higher education. Liverpool had just been named the European capital of culture and to celebrate there was a free outdoor show culminating to my utter surprise in Ringo playing drums on top of St George's Hall, one of the huge town halls in the middle of the city. I truly had arrived in Liverpool. Years later, I was lucky enough to see Paul McCartney air guitar to a small crowd who had gathered outside the Liverpool Philharmonic, where Paul had attended the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts graduation, as he does every year for the college he philanthropically funded. Aside from these rare and insane Beatles moments, while I enjoyed many aspects of Beatles tourism that had exploded in the city by the time I arrived here, it was the process of me realising I was inhabiting many of the spaces that the Beatles used to occupy before they were famous that really sucked me back into Beatles fandom. My daily walk took me down the same street that John and Paul would go along to catch the bus home from college. I lived in the same road that Stuart Sutcliffe had for a short while and I often visited the Cathedral Garden where Paul was known to sit with his guitar. Along with this realisation came yet more Beatles connections for me. I'd started working in the fundraising team at the University of Liverpool and we were working on a project to build an auditorium which would hold concerts. Our team approached Yoko Ono who had for many years supported student scholarships in John's name and she kindly also supported the project which culminated in the university opening the Yoko Ono Lennon Centre. This ended up with me meeting John's son, Sean Ono Lennon, in person for the grand opening, one of the best working days I've had. 
At the same time as this was the launch of the Beatles Music Industry and Heritage Master's degree at the university, which is how I ended up meeting today's podcast guest, Dr Holly Tesla, who runs the course. By attending one of Holly's free talks on women and the Beatles, it opened my eyes to a whole new world of Beatles history and scholarship that I didn't know existed. Far from retelling the same beloved story of how the Beatles got together and transformed music forever, Holly and her colleagues around the world were looking at new ways to explore Beatles themes with a modern lens, an inclusive, diverse approach that really appealed to me. And this really is what inspired me to go on my own Beatles adventure to start this podcast and to speak to as many people as I could who could offer new hidden histories of the Beatles. So here we are. And this really leads me perfectly to my first guest. So let me tell you about Holly before we get stuck into our chat. Dr Holly Tesla is Senior Lecturer at the University of Liverpool and the Programme Leader for the MA in The Beatles, Music Industry and Heritage. Holly has nearly 10 years of commercial radio experience, having worked with several commercial and public radio stations in her native Philadelphia. In Liverpool, she's created two university record labels, Red Brick Records for staff research projects and original releases, and Merciful Sound, a fully student-run record label. She's also founding co-editor of the Journal of Beatles Studies, published by Liverpool University Press. I was so grateful for Holly's time and knowledge, especially as she really inspired me to take the leap and start this podcast. So please enjoy, subscribe if you would like to, leave a review or get in touch via my website, offthebeatletrackpod.com. It is my pleasure to speak to you, particularly on the very first episode of this new series. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking. Um, I blame you largely for me kicking off this podcast in the first place. I'm lucky enough to know you through work. We both work at the University of Liverpool. And I guess we've come together through Yoko Ono, I would say. I would say so, Yeah. Uh, I was doing a talk for uh, Yoko's 90th birthday, which was in February, and it was on a Saturday, and you were kind enough to come along on a cold and wintry Saturday morning to sort of hear me think and reflect about the role of Yoko and women in the lives of the Beatles more generally. And that really just started a conversation, and here we are. Yeah, I think you've really um, opened my mind to new possibilities in Beatles history, that I'd never really thought about before. I was happy trundling along and thinking I know the story. I probably listened to them every other day, but just chatting to you made me realise what else there is out there, particularly through your work that you're doing with the new masters. But I think before we get into that, I'd love to hear about your Beatles journey as a fan and where it all started for you. Right, okay. Well, my Beatles story begins, unfortunately, with the death of John Lennon because I was a kid at the time and I remember walking to school with a friend of mine the next day and she said it's a shame about John Lennon because it was all over the news it was the biggest story of my life at that point and I I sort of said yeah it is a shame about John Lennon then we sort of walked on for a couple of minutes and I said "But, but who is he because as a kid in the 80s in 1980 you just I I didn't know I heard of the Beatles but I didn't know about them And this was a story that at that point was the biggest one I ever remember hearing. It went on in the news 
for weeks and weeks and months. And it was the kind of thing where it wasn't just a matter of fact reporting, but everyone was so upset by it and people were crying and, and you just have people holding up signs and going to New York City. And I just, after a couple of weeks and months of this, I decided to figure out who this John Lennon is and why people were so upset by it. And being the nerd kid that I was, instead of going to a record shop, I went to the library because as far as I was concerned, he was an historical figure. So I got out a book called The Boys from Liverpool by Nicholas Schaffner and was absolutely absorbed by the story. It, it could have been a fairy tale. And then I started to get annoying and I started to talk to people. Did you know this about the Beatles? Did you know that about the Beatles? And I was driving everyone around me crazy. And then finally, a couple of months later, my mom buys me an album of the Beatles' red album, The Greatest Hits, 62 to 66, and said, just listen to the music, kid. I think just to really just shut me up about my all of my interesting Beatle factoids. And that was it. No going back ever since. Do you think a lot of us modern Beatles fans are nerds? Because I certainly am. It's a, it's a great topic to get nerdy about. Yes, yes, I absolutely do. <laughs> and since doing this MA, I have not realized just how much fandom and how many different varieties of Beatles fandom there are in the world. And it's a remarkable thing to just think about that the Beatles have touched so many generations over the years and in so many different ways and how people can see the same footage and remark on vastly different things from the musicianship to the clothing to what's, you know, hanging on the wall in the background. It's remarkable. So how did you go from that kid in the library trying to find out who John Lennon was to now program leader at the University of Liverpool for the Masters in Beatles Music Industry and Heritage? Yeah, I know. It's a crazy story, really. <laughs> um, not one that I ever planned. I mean, I've been a Beatles fan all my life, but certainly by the time I reached adulthood into my 20s, the Beatles were always a part of my life, but never a central focus to it. But then in 2001, I moved to Liverpool from the United States because the University of Liverpool at that time was offering an MBA in music industries specifically. And I was working in radio and I was at that point in my career where I felt having an advanced degree would be useful. And I was looking around and in the U.S. master's degrees are usually two years and they're usually very expensive. So uh, along in the University of Liverpool's MBA in music industries, it's a year long and I get to come to the UK for a year and it's a whole lot cheaper than it would have been in the US. I thought, why not do it? I'll pop over for a year, get my master's, turn around and rejoin my career. But unfortunately, I got here, well, I got here on 9-11, which is another story, um, but um, I got here in September of 2001 and unfortunately, George Harrison had died in November of 2001. And I was so caught up in just moving to Liverpool and living my life that I really didn't take the time to stop and absorb all the Beatles stuff in Liverpool until he died. And then I thought, well, it's it's a good time as any to just go and immerse myself in sort of Beatles history in Liverpool. And of course there wasn't very much at that time. And um, what I did was I went down Matthew Street and standing outside the cavern, there was a camera crew after camera crew after camera crew from all around the world reporting from the cavern club. And I thought, well, that's, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Because he really hasn't been in Liverpool in decades. And why are they reporting from the cavern club? And then I went to 
uh, strawberry field and saw exactly the same thing. And that started me thinking about, you know, the Beatles and history and it's their relationship to Liverpool. And that really started me on my PhD study, which I did about the Beatles as a cultural brand. I got that and then um, started working in academia and came back to Liverpool in 2019. And just at that point, the University of Liverpool was looking to expand its postgraduate provision. And I went to my head of department, who was Catherine Tapley at that point, and said, here's an idea. And to my utter surprise, she said, well, that's not a bad idea. And you don't know how well it timed it is. Because unbeknownst to me, they had only just a few days before decided to name the new concert hall after Yoko Ono. So all we just had this very organically natural fit. People think we must have conspired to put all of these pieces together, but it really didn't work out that way. And so, um, yeah, after the pandemic, we finally got it up and running and we're in our second year now. And part of that, which for me was so wonderful, because I got to take part in the, well, I was working on the fundraising side of the Yoko Ono Lennon Centre, but then we got to take part in the fantastic visit from um, Sean, uh, Sean Lennon, who came over uh, and opened the building for us. So what was like that like for you? I was there with the photographer, so I didn't really get to chat to Sean too much, but it was still probably one of the best working days I've had. What was it like to be there running the program, talking to him about it? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the greatest working days of my life as well, to be sure. To be sure. And we didn't know until the very last minute exactly what was going to happen. We knew he was, he was probably coming to Liverpool for quite some time, but we didn't know his timetable or his schedule. And what had happened was um, he was coming on a day when I, we didn't normally teach the Beatles MA. So I sort of had to go to the students. We have to switch the day for this particular week. I can't say why, but you want to make sure you're here. And of course, being all Beatles fans themselves, they kind of put two and two together and knew what was coming. But on the day, we didn't know if he was just going to sort of pop his head in and wave hello and move on or not come in at all. Uh, somebody did tell me to be prepared that he might want to sit in on a class. So no pressure there at all. So on the day, we were all sort of sitting there very nervously. And then when the door opened, he walked in and we were all, of course, just on the edge of our seats. But he could not have been more lovely. And I don't know that he knew what quite to expect from the Beatles MA. I think he might have thought it was sort of a giant fan club meeting or, you know, just a whole bunch of people who really love the Beatles in a room. But once we started talking about it, he's got what we do. And we under- he really understood the idea that it's about the Beatles' legacy. And it's not just about fandom, but the role the Beatles play, not only just in cultural history, but in Liverpool specifically. And that it's a story that's much bigger than just the four of them themselves. So we just sat around. He was there for the full two hours. He signed things. He brought gifts for all of us. He took selfies with students. He could not have been nicer or more relaxed and more supportive. It was, it's a year ago, almost to the day. And it's, it's really remarkable to think back on that now. Yeah. The, the anniversary is tomorrow. And I think we're going to be at an event there. Um, it must have been a huge endorsement for you for the program with Sean being there and understanding it. 
Um, were there any challenges in setting it up for that reason in terms of convincing people its validity? Absolutely. And it still continues to be a challenge because when you say the words M.A. and Beatles in the same sentence, that's all they tend to hear. When I created the degree, I specifically gave it that very long title, the full title of which is The Beatles Music Industry and Heritage, as a way of trying to not only encourage potential applicants in understanding what specifically we're going to study on the degree, but also to emphasize to the wider world that it isn't just a celebratory degree or the ultimate fan experience. And that still continues to be a challenge. There are just so many millions of Beatles fans out in the world that when they hear Liverpool and Beatles and come here to study, the study bit tends to get a bit lost in the shuffle. And what they want to do is go and commune at Strawberry Field or stand on Matthew Street, which is which is a fan I understand, but certainly as an academic, that's not what we do. And it's it's sometimes a challenge to get people's you know, to get them to understand and appreciate that it really is a master's degree and it will challenge you. Yes. And the fact that it exists as a master's degree obviously suggests that there are so many more questions out there to be asked about the Beatles and their wider world um, and wider history. What for you are the most exciting areas of that at the moment? Oh, well, one of the really most exciting uh, opportunities for me is that I teach a module called the Beatles in the 21st century. And what we're doing in that module is looking at the question of why are the Beatles still so popular more than 50 years after they've broken up? What is it about them? It's not just a reliance on that first generation of fans who themselves are in their you know 60s, 70s, into their 80s as well. But younger people are very passionate. And we look at the way younger generations interact with the Beatles, how they interact with it. We look at two areas, really, sort of media studies and trans media studies, which is looking at the way uh, the Beatles and stories about the Beatles and narratives about the Beatles and the Beatles brand and images and all of that stuff circulates in society and popular culture now. Uh, One of the exercises we just did in class this week was to map all the various ways people might intersect with some aspect of the Beatles. So it might be through academic study, it might be on a bus trip, it might be in a video game, it might be buying a designer watch. All of these things are, all of these are immersive or interactive ways of experiencing the Beatles just far beyond just their music. So we look at that and that's been really exciting because there's so much scholarship on the Beatles and so much to talk about that it's really a great, privilege to be able to you know develop new questions and new thinking about the Beatles and not just recite the same old canon of historical facts and figures that the whole world is bored to death with hearing about. And presumably in your class is it a range of ages of people that take the class so obviously there'll be people there who won't have been born obviously when the Beatles are out there and they're experiencing the band in a completely different way. Absolutely. We have folks who had just finished their undergraduate degrees, so who are, you know, barely in their 20s, and we have folks in their 60s and 70s as well. And it's a really interesting dynamic because in some ways, of course, the generational divide is reflective of what you see online with the whole OK Boomer thing and Generation Z and all of that. 
But because everyone is Beatles fans, they're in a room and they're united by that shared love and interest. And it really is informative for one generation to be able to speak to their fandom experiences with others. And I think it really adds a layer of understanding and communication that we couldn't have anticipated. So it's been really good. How long has um, Beatles scholarship within academia been accepted as a legitimate area? That's a good question. I mean, people going certainly back to the 1960s have been writing about the Beatles in some way, shape or form. Certainly their northernness in the 60s and their hair. You would not believe how much is um, culturally uh, significant about the length of their hair. It looks, you know, today we look at it and say, what's the big deal? But at the time it was absolutely scandalous and it was, you know, the, the triggering of the decline of Western civilization as we know it. And all of these northern upstarts and working class yobs and it was remarkable. But in terms of more critical and distant scholarship, I mean, well, it's hard to say. I mean, there were people writing about it from a musicological standpoint from the 60s. There's a critic, a music critic for the London Times called William Mann, who was writing in the 19th, yeah, I think it was about 1963. He wrote his first musicological review of the Beatles using classical musicology terms. But in terms of sort of cultural studies, it really begins with, I would say, Twilight of the Gods by Wilfred Mellers. And that was I think in a, in the early 70s. And that was really the first reflective sort of academic-ish piece, although it was written as a popular market book. And ever since, certainly since the 1980s, after John Lennon's murder, there's just been an explosion of people wanting to study the Beatles, not just in and of themselves, but in relation to other fields, and that has just grown exponentially, as I say, over the years, just from the Beatles and music, to the Beatles and culture, to the Beatles and science, medicine, all of these things, a field you would never imagine there being a link. And on a meta level, that becomes really interesting when you start thinking about why are there so many studies about the Beatles? You've also brought out, alongside, once the Masters have started, there's also a Beatles journal now what was the thinking behind that and again why don't you think this happened before if there was kind of this explosion of Beatles studies going on yeah that's a really good question um the Beatles journal emerged um because I was giving a talk within the university about the relationship between the Beatles MA and the Beatles heritage sector in Liverpool and one of the people who was, it was a Zoom, and we were all in lockdown at the time, and it was a Zoom call. And one of the people on the Zoom call, uh, listening to my talk, unbeknownst to me at the time, was the publisher at Liverpool University Press. And he was, um, went back to LUP and was asking his colleagues, is there a Beatles journal or, and if not, why not? And it turns out there isn't. And so, Claire uh, Hooper, who is their director for journals or publisher for journals, got in touch and asked me, would I be interested in starting what up? And I said, well, well, yes, yes, I would. And so we were uh, lucky enough that, again, and it just makes sense, where we have in within the university a Yoko Ono Center, a master's in Beatles music industry and heritage, 
that we have an opportunity to build even more scholarly links outside the university through the journal. And because it's open access as well, we're really lucky that people are able to access access it for free. Yes, this is huge. Uh, an academic journal that anyone can access. And also, if you want to buy a copy, it's about 20 quid. Um, it's really crossing boundaries between ac- academia um, and popular culture. People can just grab it. I was really interested to see on Instagram, there were Beatles fans that I follow. They had copies of this academic journal. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that before, that crossing the boundary between academia and, and popular culture. Um, was that a surprise to you or were you conscious of it as you were putting it together? Uh, yes and no. Uh, you know, when you're sort of up to your eyeballs in the midst of putting together a journal, it's very dry and it's very mundane. And you're looking at things about semicolons and if it's double quoted or single quotes and, <laughs> and you, you just sort of think that you're just, dealing with a very small universe of scholars who are interested in these sort of things. But of course, anything Beatles related out into the wider world, as we've learned, draws a lot of attention. The fact that there are so many non-academics interested in the journal is something we we kind of anticipated, but we didn't expect it to be quite as big as it was. I mean, we've had reviews in popular media from around the world about the journal. Um, at not only just looking at the articles from the contributors we were lucky to have, um, but also, again, at that meta level of, oh, there's a journal about the Beatles now, an academic journal at that. So it's been exciting to sort of just see it to get amplified around the world as well. And again, um, in the next, oh, 10 days, we're due to get all the submissions for the next edition. So that's in your seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. Um, will this kind of new audience that you're drawing change your approach to putting the journal together? Are you conscious of that kind of wider audience? And how are you going to sort the submissions? Because surely, is it non-academic uh, submissions that people are sending to? We get a lot of interesting ideas. Um, some of them a little bit more developed and scholarly than others. Um One of the things we are really concerned to do with the journal is have it be an opportunity for people who are typically underrepresented in Beatles studies. So we have um, traditionally there are a lot of research and publications from men, Anglophone from U.S. or the U.K., and there tends to be a recitation of the same old facts again and again and again. So consciously what we want to do with the journal is hear from people outside the Anglophone world, outside the U.S., outside the U.K., hear from women, hear from people from the global south, because, of course, the Beatles were not just a British or American phenomenon. So we're looking to invite new scholarship as well from, you know, people who are maybe just doing a master's or a Ph.D. now, as well as people who are in different parts of the world where we don't hear about how the Beatles are interpreted or studied there and in different fields as well. So that's one of the things we're really looking to do. So we prioritize any sort of contributions from people and places and perspectives we've not heard before. And then after that, um, unfortunately, even though it's an open access journal, which means it's online, we are limited to space. 
per issue. So we do have to be selective. And it is an academic journal, although we do try to accommodate the fact that we know we have a wider readership than most academic journals do. The, the point is, it's not a fan magazine, and it's not a magazine for general readership. So we do look for scholarly research, research that is embedded in context of an academic discipline or through some sort of primary research. But within that, within the journal, we have a special feature that we're calling Across the Universe. And that's really where we look to dedicate a portion of each journal to all of the creative practice that goes on around the Beatles. So maybe people are not writing academic articles, but they might be doing a photography exhibition or a musical performance, or they might be doing an interview or something like that with someone involved in Beatles history. And we really wanted to capture that kind of creative scholarship about the Beatles as well. So not entirely just the written word. What I think is so important about the journal for me is this diversity in the voices who are speaking in it and also the approaches that are being taken. <clears throat> I have, as I'm sure many people will have, a bookcase dedicated to my Beatles books, which are considered the seminal books about the Beatles. Yet, as we have discussed before, they are all written by boomers with a particular angle, which isn't wrong in and of itself. But obviously, there is so much more to uncover. And it's so important that we can look at it all with a fresh lens. And I think the journal is really kind of injecting life into the possibilities that there are about filling in historical gaps as well within that traditional story that we all think we know that are missing. Well, you're quite right. And again, with both the journal and the MA, that's exactly what we aim to do, is not necessarily disrupt the narrative, but decenter it to say, okay, we've heard the same story from this perspective for 50 years. What happens if we tell the story from a different perspective? Or what happens if we reconsider in a new light these facts and recontextualize them? And that's certainly... Yoko Ono is the, the best example of that, mm. where for more than 50 years now, the standard Beatles history goes that she's the divisive force that broke up the Beatles and she had an agenda and this, that, and the other thing. And certainly, thankfully, times have changed and we have enough new voices contributing to Beatles studies now where we can finally say, maybe that's not the case. Maybe Yoko was just the victim of an astonishing tsunami of institutional racism and sexism and that she wasn't trying to break up the Beatles. And in fact, she might have held them together longer than they might have done without her there. And that she was someone who's just stoically borne all of this criticism. And we take a deep dive into this in the Beatles MA. And a couple of the students have put together really powerful assignments that deconstruct Yoko's narrative and if you go back and historically and you even look at some of the articles that have been written about her they're jaw-dropping that anything at any time in even the recent popular history could be acceptable it's just shocking so now that we're in a point where we could at least question whether or not we might 
have some value in understanding Yoko as a human being and not as a caricature is a really good thing. And it's it's quite exciting, again, just to to hear these new perspectives. How long do you think it takes for these new perspectives to kind of filter down into the mainstream? Because even now, even just the people writing about the Beatles in the mainstream are still often white men. The podcasts created about the Beatles, this is quite rare to have two women talking about the Beatles on a podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, it it does take some time to filter down. There is of course, uh, sort of a Beatles patriarchy. And there are certain um, men of a certain age who say, this is the Beatles story and it's all about the facts and these are the facts and you dare not challenge them. And that's okay. It's always important to have the facts right, but all facts are interpretive. And it, there isn't just one perspective. And again, just watching Get Back and talking about that in lectures, for me, as the person who's leading the discussion, it's fascinating for me to see the insight and the observations that different people and different genders and different age groups and different experiences have, and how some of them are so focused on one aspect, whether it's the musicianship, and somebody else is looking at the fashion, like I said, or looking at the relationships and the body language. And it it just goes to show you that times are changing. And I think social media is really important. Having podcasts like these are really important, getting the message out there that you don't just have to accept this received wisdom about the Beatles, that one of the reasons they're persisting is that there's something in their story that everyone identifies with. And it's not always the same aspects. So I do think it's a long road, but we're on the road now, which is, again, really exciting. Get Back was a real watershed moment for me, and I think many others, in terms of falling back down into that Beatles rabbit hole again. Um, it, it really um, <clears throat> got got my interest going again in, in a way that I hadn't done since I was a kid listening to the Beatles. And I think it's something that you mentioned in your introduction to the journal, that it Peter Jackson's version is the all-inclusive version rather than the original where they were trying to cut out anyone but the Beatles and it very much reminded me of the anthology that I used to watch on a Saturday night with my mum and dad that was a huge seminal program uh, and really piqued people's interests again but that was in the 90s and again everyone was edited out there were no wives no girlfriends no families it was just focused on the four boys and I, I don't know, I think it's shown, uh, shown us culturally kind of how far we've come, um, as you say, into thinking about them in kind of slightly different terms. Well, absolutely. And you, you put your finger on a really interesting point that we spent a lot of time talking about, which was how anthology and get back are almost bookends of a 21st century Beatles narrative. In that anthology, you have to, for people who might not know, when the Beatles broke up in 1970, until anthology, that's a 25-year period, they did not at all engage with their history. So it was absolutely silent. When the Beatles broke up, that was the end of it. There were no authorized histories. There were no videos. There were no documentaries. And anthology was a generational way of introducing 
two people who were born and discovered the Beatles in that 25-year period, of which I was one, to hear their real story in their own words for the first time. And it was such an exciting thing because in America, they showed anthology all in one block in one week. Wow. And of course, in the UK, they serialized it. Yeah. And so what it meant is in the U.S., this was a big deal. And I remember I was so excited. I couldn't even sit down. I was standing by the telly for two hours watching it like this aghast. And of course, at the very end of the first episode, they introduced the first new Beatles song and new in inverted commas, which is, of course, Freeze Bird, which was an unfinished track by John Lennon that Paul, George and Ringo performed on. So technically, yes, it's all four Beatles performing on a track, so it is a Beatles song. But of course, that's a very de- divisive sort of point of contention amongst Beatles fans. But ultimately, the point being, anthology was sort of meant to be the history of the Beatles for people who might not know who they are. Whereas Get Back is a really interesting story because it tells the end of the Beatles. And that's always been problematic for Apple in promoting the Beatles as a brand because, of course, they break up and it's not a particularly happy time. And it wasn't, they rode off into the sunset and lived happily ever after. They didn't speak to each other and they didn't perform with each other again publicly for quite some time. And there was, of course, a lot of sniping that long, especially in the 70s. And it was a very unhappy time. So in Retelling the history of Get Back and the history of the Let It Be film that, of course, was its ancestor. Mm. Um, Peter Jackson had a big task in front of him. And what we see that, of course, they did break up in the end, but it wasn't the unhappy, miserable story that we all remember it sort of collectively being. And what's interesting about it, of course, it, it goes on quite a bit. It's, it's at least, what, eight or nine hours, I believe. So it's not something you can just knock out into the afternoon. We do take a deep dive, and, and some of it does really test the patience of even the most besotted Beatles fan. But what we can learn from this is, of course, they live in a world that isn't just this little bubble of the four of them. There are people coming and going all throughout the film. I, I wonder how they got anything done. And it's just all, you know, Peter, people like Peter Sellers. And you think, what on earth is Peter, Peter Sellers doing, you know, sitting in on a Beatles session? And they're just taking it in their stride. So we we sort of see the Beatles in different ways. We see them as partners and collaborators, but we see them as husbands and partners and fathers and brothers and siblings and it's it's a real challenge that to understand the Beatles in that sense that they weren't these just magical beings but they're I think Get Back succeeds most in humanizing them that we come away thinking that the Beatles look just like 20 something young men would look today and they just look cool and they sound cool and they have a laugh and they have a great sense of humor and they look like people we would want to be friends with. And I think it's that kind of retelling of the story and seeing them, <coughs> excuse me, as human beings that really draws their story into the 21st century and gets younger people so interested. I totally agree. It's the honesty of it 
obviously that appeals to the modern audience far more than the sanitized view that was put forward in anthology and kind of just the normalization of these guys and showing it as a much the breakup was much more kind of complex thing um you know because they were getting on at some points and weren't at others um I I really appreciate it for for its honesty I wondered what you thought going on that kind of honesty track and about how more documentaries are coming out with more honest views uh, what you thought of May Pang's forthcoming documentary because like many um women that wrote about the Beatles that were partners or wives a lot of their biographies came out in the 80s and out, out of publication and have been out of circulation for a long time. Um, so I think this is quite exciting that she's getting a say and I'm hoping that it'll get to kind of a wider audience. But it'll be interesting to see what the reaction to that is with the modern audience, because it's not all a positive story, obviously. Uh, certainly not. Uh, she's certainly got one of the, uh, the more complicated relationships with John Lennon in his life, because, of course, as we all know, Yoko becomes the defining love of his life. But there's a point where they're not getting along. And she suggests that they take a break from each other. And in in that break, directs John's attention in the the, the uh, direction of her assistant, who was May Peng. And May and John embark on a relationship that neither of them really anticipated lasting forever, which is Again, it's a very tricky, thorny question if you're thinking about it from sort of contemporary gender dynamics and positions of trust and power and things like that. But one of the revealing things, I've not seen her documentary in full yet. It's not come to the UK. I've heard just yesterday that it will be coming here in sort of the second half of the year. So I'm excited to see it. But May Pang, I think what emerges from both the book and from the trailer of the documentary is that she's she's not a wallflower. She's a very strong and independent and forceful woman who's engaged and smart. And I think anyone who's going to be in a relationship with John has to be able to keep up with him intellectually. And she's certainly someone who does that and offers him a certain amount of healing and allows him to exorcise those demons that were following him around all through that what that period he calls the lost weekend. So in a lot of ways, it's she lives a difficult life and a difficult relationship with him, but it ultimately allows him to heal, and that makes her stronger in the long run. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it is it's an interesting relationship to understand in the wider relationships of women or the relationships John Lennon had with the women in his life. In his I life. was. I was interested to read one review. Uh, obviously, I haven't seen it yet because it's not out um, in this country yet, sadly. But they just said that the media have called it a very interesting portrait of John. I think it's a very interesting portrait of May Pang, as you said. She was 22 years old at the time, living this roller coaster of a life. I think it's a thrilling portrait of a woman in the late 70s trying to negotiate everything she was trying to do, let alone what it tells us about John. Well, absolutely. As, as somebody who is so young and... I always am struck by the fact that she's a tough-talking New Yorker with a New York accent, and she just seems like someone who's so much more wise and beyond her years at that point. You'd think someone who was that young would be in awe 
of someone like John Lennon. And yet she seems to hold her own and doesn't seem to be at all overwhelmed by the circumstances in which she finds herself. And as you say, that is a really interesting portrait of someone who's so young and so dynamic. And she really is someone who could captivate um, and help to nurture um, someone like John Lennon. And of course, she was instrumental in bringing his relationship with Julian back together, which is, again, something she doesn't get a lot of credit for. Yeah, I was very interested to see that Julian is part of the documentary, um, which I think is wonderful. That'll add a really interesting angle to it. Um, I wondered why it took so long for her to tell the story or whether she felt that now was the time. Obviously, way back, Cynthia published a biography about John, um, A Twist of Lennon, uh, which wasn't the full story. She didn't feel at the time she could talk about the darker side of, of John. And then she came out and wrote a second autobiography later, which was a more honest version when she obviously felt that she could talk about that kind of thing. And I wonder whether May Pang has felt the same, whether she feels like with the more modern audience now, it can be told in a more honest way and that people are ready to hear a version of the story that is different to the one they heard before. As you say, we're used to this like romantic fairy tale version and it isn't that. No, it, it is an interesting question. I'd really love to hear her response to it now. Maybe it is just a practical thing that there's a market for it now. Or maybe it's, as you say, that we're now ready to hear it. Maybe Get Back has inspired a lot of people to rethink their understanding of the Beatles and their relationship with women. So maybe now this is a good opportunity for her. Or maybe she just didn't want to be, after releasing the book so soon after his death, maybe she didn't want to be seen to keep exploiting it Mm. and the relationship. And it sort of go down a tacky and um, a distasteful route because whatever the relationship was, it was real and it lasted for a substantial period of time. So maybe she thought, hey, you know, she's, she's someone again, who's no one's getting younger. So maybe she just wanted to have the opportunity to tell her story definitively while she still has the opportunity to do so. We've talked briefly about the, the legacy of the Beatles um, how important do you think the families of uh, the Beatles will be in the future? Because obviously many of the children have become stewards of their father's um, works. Um, and as you say, we, Sean came over as an ambassador for Yoko and his father, really, in the opening of the Yoko Ono Lennon Centre. Um, how key is that? It, it is absolutely key. I mean, that's for better or worse, unfortunately, we're at the cusp of losing that first generation of fans. And certainly Paul, at, he's going just turned 80 and Ringo's going to be 183 this year. And they're not getting any younger again. And there is a question of who's going to look after the legacy or what happens to the Beatles legacy after they are no longer here to protect it. And I think that's a bigger question for the city of Liverpool as well, because, of course, we've just seen with the Queen that stories change from when it's lived, you know, a person living their lives to lived history. And we see all the controversy around documentaries and 
even fictionalized shows like The Crown on Netflix, for instance, where they're reinterpreting even just history that people alive today have lived through. And I suspect we're going to get a lot of that about the Beatles when they're no longer with us. And there's a lot of concern that, again, people will get the story straight. Well, of course, that's important. But at the same time, all history becomes interpretive after a point. If you look at um, Wolf Hall, for instance, by... I forget her name. Um, the historical fiction writer. I can't remember country. her name. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, she's someone, again, we can look at Henry VIII, and yes, she's interpreting history, but it's also fictionalized. And even bringing it back to the modern day, a relatively recent film like Yesterday embellishes on Beatles history. What happens if only one guy knows the story of the Beatles and knows their music? And so we get to see all of this reinterpretation and this what ifing already. But I mean, that's what history does. And to try to ring fence it and say, ah, oh, you're not telling the story correctly is a different experience. There are Beatles historians who will spend their days on the internet correcting everyone <laughs> who mislabels a photo or gets a date wrong. Oh, that sounds that's awful. <laughs> Again, it's important that we get this information correct, but that's not the same thing as cultural engagement with the history of the Beatles. And those two things are very different. And I think the important thing is that the story still resonates with every succession, every successive generation of Beatles fans, that if it's just something that's ring-fenced and put in a case in the British Library or the British Museum and said, that's your history and that's your heritage, it gets boring, it gets dull. What makes Beatles, the Beatles come alive, both as human beings and through their music, is their story and how it gets updated and reflective of every successive generation. So I think if I were in charge of looking after the Beatles' legacy, that I would be very careful about where those artifacts go, how you tell those stories. And in a lot of ways, I think um, Mary McCartney is perhaps one of the most um, capable of looking after that because she's a documentary filmmaker as well. She understands the Beatles, of course, not just through our own lived history of her father and her mother, for that matter, but also through the lens of being someone who's a documentary filmmaker and a photographer and can tell these stories and understands how you can use history as a way of developing a new strand of dialogue and discourse. Mm. And um, there is a legacy group uh, as part of Liverpool City, isn't there, that you're part of? But obviously yes. the history of the Beatles goes way beyond this city. Um, so it's interesting to see how it will change elsewhere and in different cultures too. Um, what's it been like for you teaching about the Beatles does it make your relationship with them as a fan any different it's uh something uh we sort of call an ACA fan there's mm. um an academic writer who's come up with that term again I forget his name Adam Hills I think oh, no Adam Hills is a comedian um I will find it Matt Hills um and he came up with this phrase, ACA fan, which is you're an academic and you're a fan. And 
it's important to acknowledge your fandom. I would be completely dishonest if I was trying to be a dispassionate academic about a, a group that's defined my life in many ways. But at the same time, being a fan doesn't give you carte blanche to just not question everything and to just take on board the facts and the figures and just unquestionably just pass on this received wisdom. I think there's a challenge inherent in studying anything you're a fan of, whether it's Shakespeare or science fiction or the Beatles or sport or whatever it might be, literature. If you're a fan, you have to understand your fandom and sort of park it to one side and then look a little bit more objectively. So you have to understand that the Beatles were young people who were working without any sort of template and they're human beings and they're flawed. And just because you love their music doesn't make them perfect individuals. And it's important to question things. Mm. And of course, not just describe them. One of the things that really drives me crazy in certain Beatles books is John met Paul and the rest was history, as if it was all just magically meant to happen. And there was no agency and whatever they would have done, it would have all just worked out because it was meant to. Well, that that's the worst possible narrative we can possibly ascribe to the Beatles because they worked tremendously hard for the success and they were certainly the opposite of an overnight sensation. It took them the better part of five years, really, to start having an impact. And that's not through magic or fate or destiny or good luck or good fortune, but a combination of talent, yes, and intelligence, yes, but a relentless work ethic and finding the solutions where there weren't any. And I think that's what's really important. And one of the real challenges in studying the Beatles is to sort of take that same perspective and not just accept blindly all of the stories and information we've been told, but to really question it and say, well, what happens if we change the perspective, if we tell the story a different way? Thank you so much, Holly. It's It's been a pleasure to chat to you, and I can't wait to see the MA go from strength to strength. And... um Everyone's waiting for the next journal. When do you think it might be out for everyone to read? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, we have a very tight deadline. We're hoping it'll be, we're going to do a double issue. Probably that'll be out in September-ish. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, if people want to hear more about you, you're on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. Um, I have ish on uh, Instagram. I do nothing with it. And I probably won't even know if you follow me. So Twitter's <laughs> probably the best place to find me. Okay, I'll, I'll post your links for, for people to see. But thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much for uh, encouraging me to uh, start this venture. It's really exciting. Oh, I'm, I'm privileged to hear that. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great chatting to you. Thanks, Holly. Yeah, 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 yeah.